Do remain standing and turning your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Paul's letter to the Philippians. Now, last week we began our series in the Philippians, but with Acts chapter 16, we saw the birth of a church. And now we have, about a decade later, Paul's letter to that church. We'll be reading Philippians 1, 1, and 2. But before I do that, let's pray. Our God, you lead us from light into light, and, we, and you do that by your own light, by your revelation, your word. Help us now by your spirit to see Jesus Christ, the light of the world, to see Jesus Christ, the word of God, the wisdom of God, see grace and peace flowing from his heavenly throne. Through this passage, we pray, amen. Philippians 1, 1 and 2. Hear now the word of God. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, I have never baked a cake myself, but I have been the blessed recipient and eater of many cakes. And it's my understanding that there are some basic ingredients to building a cake or something. The builder of this cake must have flour. He must have whole wheat flour, bread flour, something like that, I'm told. Now, again, for the sake of the, for the, sake of the introduction, you need to bear with me. I am not entertaining any substitutions as is common in cake building. But the builder of this cake must also use sugar, granulated powdered sugars. Again, I'm told. Again, I've seen. Of course, salt is a necessity. You have to have salt, ironically, because it enhances the sweetness of the cake. I'm told. I've enjoyed. And if you want to have your cake rise, which is a common preference among many, you need to have some leavening agents, baking powder, yeast, baking soda, we know that one of the reasons that God has blessed this world with chickens is to build cakes, and we have to have eggs, not cakes made out of chickens. I saw what you were thinking there. But eggs for the building of the cake. The cake maker must also use fats, vegetable oil, butter. And finally, you have to have dairy products like milk or cream cheese and all that jazz. No, I, I sound like a pro, don't I? I'm sure when I return home, my wife will correct me on what I was missing and how I poorly explained the ingredients that we need. But let me just tell you how much of a pro I really am. So in college, first year of college, 18 years old, I, I was in speech class, and we had to do three or four speeches. And one of those speeches was a demonstration speech. So you had to talk and demonstrate something. And I chose to make no baked cookies. And I was guided by my then girlfriend, now wife, on how to build these no baked cookies. Had all the ingredients, even did it in the apartment, and it worked beautifully. And when it came to the speech time, I was there in front of my whole class and my professor and I'm going through it. Here's what you need. You need this. You need the butter or whatever. You need all these things. 
and I forgot a missing, I forgot a step. I forgot to put the milk in. And as I was turning it, it just was not clumping together. There was no binding of all the ingredients. And embarrassed, I said, I don't know what happened. I failed the demonstration speech because I didn't use all the ingredients necessary, essential for these no-bake cookies. Now, I know that churches are not cakes. I'm well aware of that. But you've got to have all the ingredients if you're going to make what you set out to make. You're going to need all the ingredients, all the elements of a church. We have to know what we are getting ourselves into. We have to know what the church is. There are basic elements to every local expression of the body of Christ. And so, what are they? And we see what they are here in these first two verses of Paul's letter to the Philippians. He makes these church basics very clear. And considering them, we see that the Lord Jesus Christ graces and pacifies his people in their places. So let's consider the place in the first place. He sent this letter to those at Philippi, verse 1 says, or to those in Philippi. We don't want to overlook what can be very easily ignored or simply taken for granted. Here we have a people in a place, and it's a place called Philippi. You remember from last week that Philippi was a Roman colony. It was considered a a mini-Rome. Remember how pagan Philippi was, how thoroughly Gentile it was, that not even 10 Jewish males were there in order to form a quorum in order to have a synagogue. There were women at a riverside prayer gathering, and that was all until Paul and Silas came on the scene and then taught them the word of God, showed them the gospel. But a decade later, there were more and more people in that place, the place of Philippi. And so Paul's letter to the Philippians begins like most of his letters do, to people in a place. He writes to those in Corinth. Corinth was a place. He writes to those in Ephesus. Ephesus, the place. He writes to those in Galatia. Galatia, a place. He writes to those in Rome. Rome, a place. He writes to those in Colossae. Colossae, a place. And on and on. All of these places have this in common. They're places. You say, okay, Pastor Mark, we get it. You've said the word place too many times in the last 10 seconds. That's fair. And I bring this up because sometimes we overemphasize what is sometimes called the invisible church. Now, if you're not familiar, there's a distinction that our own confession makes, that Reformed Presbyterians make between the invisible church and the visible church. And as our confession summarizes, the invisible church consists of all of the elect of God ever. It is those whom the Father has elected. It is those for whom the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has died. And it is all those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. It's all of them, past, present, and future, the fullness of him that fills all in all. And this number has been eternally decreed, and this number will never change. God will save all that are truly his, all that he has foreordained to the adoption of sons. This number is permanently and indelibly written in the Lamb's book of life. That is the invisible church. 
And if you are in Christ, you are part of the invisible church. If you are truly saved, you are part of the invisible church. But guess what? I can see you. And people can see you. And so there is also this visible church. The invisible church is connected to the visible church. The visible church consists of all those who profess the true religion along with their children. The visible church is made up of everyone who says, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, and my children are with me in this covenant of grace. You look around, and you see what is visible to the eyes of everyone here, a group of men, women, and children who all profess Christ and who have gathered for worship. We take that for granted. We trust that you are here because you actually want to be here, and you are singing songs because you actually believe those songs. You are hearing the Word of God because you believe that this is really the Word of God. And you confess, you affirm with the apostles that Apostle Creed. It's visible. We see one another. You are not in Indonesia. Did you know that? You're in the United States of America. You're not in California. Perhaps you're happy about that. Or perhaps you're sad that you're not there. You are in North Carolina, in case you weren't aware. But you're not just anywhere in North Carolina. You're not in Raleigh, North Carolina. You're not in Sanford. You're in fine Fayetteville, North Carolina. Here you are. You're not over there. You're not over there. You're not behind me. You're not way over there, five miles. You are right here, single or married, with or without children, here and nowhere else. And we see you. And you see one another. And you profess the true religion, you with your children. So what about us here at Cross Creek? Well, Christ has sovereignly put us in our place. And I mean that in the positive sense, not like I'm going to put you in your place if you don't submit. No. Christ has sovereignly put us in our place. Remember, it's the Lord who determines our times and our boundaries, where we are, when we are. The Lord is sovereign over all of that, and he has sovereignly put us, that we see, here in this place. In our church's history, there have been countless sheep among the invisible church. So many pastors, elders, deacons, and members who have loved Jesus Christ, who shed his own blood for them. And still, there have been many others, and only the Lord knows exactly, many others who have professed faith, but did not truly possess faith. That is to say, they were members in good standing with us, just not with Jesus, which makes all the difference in the world. Some of them were excommunicated, and they, were never, they never returned. Others, sadly, simply just faded into hell. We must hold on to this distinction between the invisible church and the visible church. And if we don't, then we fall into this trap of what can be called the federal vision. Now, I say this knowing that the federal vision is as a wide spectrum of beliefs. And it's not a time to tell you all of the distinctives of what the federal vision teaches. But many or all in this group will say that if you want to see the invisible church... Just look at the person's baptism. They want to avoid or downplay 
the invisible-visible church distinction. They want to hold on to the reality that true Christians are people in the flesh, that they are visible. And yes, we want to affirm that as well. But too often, they overemphasize the visibility of the church, and it's hard for them to make a distinction between those who are truly in Christ and those who are only outwardly in Christ. To blur the lines of the invisible visible can have the opposite effect. It can have the effect of calling regenerate, calling born again, someone who is washed only with the water, but not also with the Spirit. So we need to have both of these invisible and visible. And so here at Cross Creek in Fayetteville, God has put us in our place, and this is good. You may want to be elsewhere. I trust you don't. But remember, Fayetteville needs worshipers as well. You may think it's not very glamorous here, but that's okay. We're not looking for glamour. We're looking for worship and glory, and here it is. This place needs the gospel too. Look at uh, verse 1 with me again. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now, it is to this visible church that Christ has given his ministry, his oracles, and his ordinances. That is to say, he gives us, his church, his word, his people, and his signs. And this morning, we're looking just at the word and the people that he gives us. One group of people that the Lord gives his church is the group of the minister or the servant of Christ Jesus. A people-less place is a waste. That is to say, it is a wasteland that is awaiting people to populate it. People to be fruitful and multiply and to fill it, to enculturate it with the love of Christ, the works of Christ. And Paul calls himself and Timothy slaves of Christ Jesus. The ESV says servants, but slaves is the word as well. Timothy is included here. He's included because he was involved in the founding of this church. You just have to read Acts 16, verse 3. You'll see Timothy there. Timothy was also with Paul at the time that Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians. In fact, the Philippians wanted Timothy to come to Philippi. And they wanted him because they knew how valuable Timothy was. But Paul had to break the news to the Philippians that he cannot part with Timothy just yet. This will be hard news for them to hear because they know that they have much love for this young minister. And they know, again, how beneficial he has been to them. Timothy has served Paul faithfully. Timothy has served Paul courageously, as Paul has served the Philippians boldly and faithfully. This is what they call themselves. They call themselves servants or slaves of Christ Jesus. People who are serving Christ Jesus. David Strain, in his commentary, says, You will look in vain in Philippians for a Pauline agenda that is not at once also the agenda of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose slave Paul was. Paul is saying, I am bound to Christ. Christ's message is my message. What Christ shows me in his word, I give to you. And I don't deviate it one inch. Here it is, pure, unalloyed, the word of God. That's what Paul is about. It's about proclaiming Christ and him crucified, Christ and him risen, Christ and him Lord. 
And that is the job of any minister of the gospel. True ministers of the gospel are slaves of Christ and servants of the gospel giver. If you graduate from NC State, you're among the wolf pack, for crying out loud. Better cry out loud. But you better not be cheering on those Tar Heels. You're a wolf among the pack, not a heel among UNC feet. Likewise, if you are a minister, you want to be a minister of the gospel one day, perhaps, you are a slave to Christ Jesus. His message becomes your message. His agenda becomes your agenda. What he says is what you say. You don't deviate. And you don't want to deviate because he is your Lord and he knows better and he is wiser than you. The ministry of the gospel is bound, chained to Christ. You don't have the license to cheer on a different message, to proclaim another gospel, which is a false gospel. No. And for all of us who are in Christ, whether we are ministers or not, our lives are chained to Jesus Christ, which is really spiritual freedom. For the Son of Man has set you free with his liberating gospel. So one group that God gives us, that Christ has given his church, is that group of ministers, of slaves of Christ Jesus. But not only does the church have ministers or gospel servants, the church also has overseers. Now, the word translated overseer here, you see that in the last part of verse 1, the word translated there is episkopos. I say that because that sounds like a word you already know. Think of episcopal or episcopalian. The word episkopos simply means bishop, and episcopalian is one form of church government. But in the New Testament, this word is used to refer to the same office as elder. It's just that it highlights a different function of the elder. There are several terms in the Bible that get at the same office, but highlight different aspects. And so, a pastor or a shepherd, that's what a pastor is. He is one who shepherds the flock. An elder is one who is usually older and wise and aged, knows the Word of God, and is among the group, an older individual who can apply the word of God in teaching. And here that we have the bishop. Bishop means an overseer. So here we have another function of the office of elder. He is one who oversees. But notice it's overseers. So it's not just one person who is overseeing as a hierarchy. It's overseers. There's a plurality of elders. There's a plurality of overseers. So what do these overseers oversee? First of all, we must note that they are overseen by someone. They're not the, the, the top dogs, if you will, that the word stops with them, that all conflicts stop with what they say. No, they are overseen by Christ Jesus, the overseer, the head of the church, the king. They are overseen by Christ. And so again, just like for the minister, just like for the gospel slaves, their agenda must be in concert with the overseer's agenda, the agenda of Jesus Christ. Their mission is subordinated to the mission of Christ. Their own authority is not absolute. It's not autonomous. It is derivative. It comes from Jesus Christ, who is their head. 
So what do overseers oversee? Well, they oversee the whole life of the church. It's the life of the church. Paul's not saying that these are overseers of all of Philippi. He's saying these are overseers of the church in Philippi. So what is in the purview of overseers? Well, what is the church all about? The church is all about grace. The church is all about peace. The church is all about Jesus Christ and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the overseers oversee the ministry of grace. They oversee what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of us. They oversee, in essence, the answer to the Shorter Catechism, question three. Now, notice it's not they dictate what we are to believe, that they are the ones who determine what we are to believe. They oversee that what is being taught is in accordance with Scripture. And they don't just willy-nilly command whatever they want, or at least they shouldn't, when it comes to exhortations in Scripture. They should be bound to what Scripture says. And they should say, this is what Scripture tells you to do. And if Scripture doesn't tell you to do that, and you can't draw that from good necessary consequences, the overseers are working out of bounds. And they're, they're, they're urging something that... God does not urge. That's binding the conscience. So they oversee the ministry of grace. Now, if we were to just summarize the, uh, the ministry of grace in Paul's letter to the Philippians, we see several things that the overseers would oversee. They would oversee the ministry of identity. That is to say, they would oversee, they do oversee, the fact that we are in Christ, that we are heavenly citizens, Yes, those in Philippi were in Philippi, but at the same time, Paul tells them in chapter 3, verse 20, they are actually in heaven. There's, they have dual citizenship. They are in Philippi, but their citizenship in, heaven, in Philippi could be revoked. It will fade away, but their heavenly citizenship will never fade away. And the overseers oversee that ministry of identity, of who you are and of whose you are, that you are even now mysteriously in heaven. They oversee also the ministry of justification, that great doctrine, that uh, doctrine on which the church stands or falls, according to Martin Luther, that beautiful teaching of the righteousness of Christ. They oversee that and pronounce it. They don't deviate from it. They don't teach anything contrary to it. They don't add in works on the front end, the middle end, and the back end. No, justification Righteousness of Christ, because no other righteousness will satisfy the justice of God, the holiness of God. And so they oversee that doctrine, that teaching. They oversee the ministry of sanctification. Sanctification is just a long word for growing in godliness, being more like Jesus. And so you'll see in chapters 2 and 4, Paul is exhorting the Philippians to continue to grow, to be more like Christ, their Lord, their Savior, the lover of their souls. And then the elders oversee that. So yes, the, the elders will exhort you, will exhort uh, you to, to be more like Jesus. And that means boldly confronting you in your sin. That means Matthew 18. That also means stirring you up to love and good deeds, reminding you of the promises of God. They also oversee the ministry of glorification, that we will be one day transformed in Christ. 
that we have these lowly bodies that Paul speaks of in Philippians 3.21 that are transferred to heavenly bodies, glorified, resurrected bodies. What a beautiful message of hope that is. And the overseers oversee that. In a word, they oversee the word and the sacraments and prayer. They oversee the means of grace. That's a weighty oversight, isn't it? They are stewards of the mysteries of God, Paul calls them. We must handle these wisely. It's a weighty, sobering responsibility. That's one of the reasons I read Ezekiel 18. It's one of the reasons I read Acts 20 there, about what the overseers are about. And the means of grace, the the gospel ministry, is to be applied. They oversee the ministry of grace in pursuit of peace with each other. That is to say, first, they oversee union in Christ. It is our heart's desire to remind you, dear ones, that you are in Christ. You trust in him, you are joined to Jesus. And there's no, there's no better union than union with Christ. And over and again, Paul speaks of the Philippians as being in Christ. Paul loves to say, in him, in Christ, over and over again in his letters. Over 150 times, there's that in language. And this is part of the overseeing ministry. We are not of the world. And true peace comes from God alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. And that's what the overseers are all about. They're they're looking after the ministry of peace in the local church and saying, remember who you are. Remember who you are connected to. You're joined to Christ. You're not joined to the world. You're not joined to Belial. You're not joined to the devil. You've been transferred from one kingdom to another. And this is an unshakable kingdom. You have peace from God in Christ by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But that ministry of grace in that pursuit of peace also looks like exhorting you to be united with one another who are already in Christ. And so they oversee the making of peace in the local church. I don't have to tell you that every single church has issues because every single church has sinners. And so there will always be opportunities for conflict resolution, for reconciliation, for greater unity with one another. And Paul depends on this oversight in the case of Euodia and Syntyche, for instance, in chapter 4, verse 2. Overseers pursue peace as far as it depends on them. They should pursue peace with each other. They should pursue peace with the deacons. They should pursue peace with you. And they should also exhort you to pursue peace and unity with one another, with all humility, with urgency, with fervency, with the love of Christ. They oversee the ministry of grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is to say, they oversee what we see in verse 2. Of course, no group of elders, no group of overseers, no session oversees this ministry perfectly. We all fail. 
And so likewise, we need this grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Even as we exhort it, we need it as well. So keep praying for us as we keep exhorting you and exhorting one another to have grace and peace with one another. But the overseers are one office in the church. There's also another office, that of deacon. Now, Paul does something here that he doesn't do in any of his other letters. He mentions both offices of overseer and deacon in this single greeting. He never includes both offices in a greeting, except for right here. Special. And perhaps that's an indication that there were overseers and deacons and church members that needed to hear this message of grace and peace more than maybe other congregations needed to hear it. Philippi, the Philippian church was not a perfect church, as I already mentioned last week and as I will remind you next week as well. There were tears. There was sorrow. There was division. There was lack of humility. There was lack of love. So he mentions both offices in this greeting. And the office of deacon is also an office of service. All of Christian duty is an office of service. We're all serving. The overseers serve, the ministers serve, the deacons serve. Well, what do the deacons serve? And how do the deacons serve? Well, the term deacon literally means to serve at tables or to wait on tables. Sometimes that means actually dealing with tables. Put in the tables in the ABF room for a fellowship meeting, for instance. But of course, their actions, their duties are not restricted to that. They don't terminate with that. That's not all they can do. The role of the deacons is to ensure that the practical matters of the church are organized. There is, this is a spiritual ministry of service. The deacons, the diaconate, is a spiritual office. It is one given by God and it is in, in, endowed by the Spirit. It's for the church. It is a spiritual ministry of service, one that helps with the financial and the practical needs. And it was the deacons in Calvin's Geneva, for instance, who worked in the hospitals. Calvin says, if you want to see evidence of reformation in the life of a church, in the life of a particular city, you need to have two things. The first is you need to have pastors who are preaching the gospel of Christ soundly. The other one is you need to have deacons demonstrating care for the poor. You need to have the spiritual and the physical. And those are evidence of real reformation in the life of the church, in the life of the city. And so the overseers, the bishops, the elders would visit the people in the hospitals, for the care of their souls. And the deacons would ensure that the day-to-day -day physical and financial needs were being met, were being taken care of. The deacons are the essential, essential second component of the dynamic duo of service in Christ. Martin Butzer, Calvin's mentor for a time, said, without it, that is to say, without the diaconate, there can be no true communion of saints. Do you highly esteem the diaconate? You should. It is a commendable office, one of great service. 
So God has given his people ministers, overseers, deacons, but he's also given his people saints. The last but not the least group in the structure of the church is the saints. Now, of course, there need to be people to minister the gospel to. There need to be people to oversee. There need to be people to serve and to exhort to serve. Enter the saints. And sadly, the Roman Catholics have given the term saint too lofty an estimation. In Roman Catholic theology, saints are those men and women who, with their lives, have earned extra merit for everyone else who just needs a little more in order to be with Jesus sooner. And so the term has this idea of someone being super spiritual. You hear that often with, well, I'm no saint. I'm not a saint, but... And if that's how you understand the word saint, then I, understand, then I can appreciate the hesitation to use it of one another or to use it of yourself. Have you, have you ever called yourself a saint? Oh, maybe, that's, maybe that would be too arrogant, too, too lofty to say that I'm a saint. You're not, don't be that, uh, don't be that proud. Like, you can, you wouldn't use a word that Jesus uses for you. Hey, you know what? If Jesus calls you beloved, you can call yourself beloved. If he calls you saint, you can call yourself a saint. Now, don't boast as if that's, like, you're that awesome. Oh, well, look at me, I'm a saint. Yeah, I can do no wrong. No, that's, that's, a, that's an error. Our sainthood has nothing to do with us. It's not like, look at all that I've done. Look at all the works that I have, I have done, I've made, and now I've achieved this high level of sainthood. No, you're, you're still a servant. You're still a slave of Christ Jesus. But you are a saint, and that is a special term. The word simply means holy one. It is one who is devoted by God to God. Someone who has been set apart from the world who's been cut out of the world and brought in, grafted in to the tree, tree of life. It refers to those who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are a saint. Notice he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. So those whose old ways have been cut off. This is actually the most common favorite word in the New Testament to speak of you. Yes, there are other words, like Christian, very rare, slave, of the way, born again, and on and on. There are other words that are used to describe those who are in Christ, but saint takes the cake over all of them. And that's why, last week, in all of my application points, I addressed you as saints over and over again. Maybe you noticed that. Maybe you didn't. But start noticing it. Although not everyone is a ministerial slave to Christ, not everyone is an overseer slave to Christ or a deacon slave to Christ, if you're in Christ, whether you are a minister of the gospel, whether you are an overseer, whether you're a deacon, it doesn't matter. If you're in Christ, you are a saint. You've been devoted by God for God. It is who you are. And because of who you are, or more importantly, because of whose you are, it is also a way of living. You are a saint. That's the indicative. 
No one's going to change that. No one's going to take that away from you. Because no one can take Christ away from you. No one can separate you from the Father. No one can separate you. Nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus. No one can remove that seal of the Spirit that is upon you. But saints act like saints. That is to say, they pursue holiness. They pursue a life that is more like Jesus than the life that hates Jesus, that shies and runs away from Jesus. So our posture should be one of praise to God who has given us his people. We can adore Christ for giving Cross Creek ministers who have faithfully preached the gospel. We can thank God for all of those forgotten and known overseers in the history of Cross Creek. We can praise God for all the deacons who have faithfully served with little to no notice by others. And you might want to consider whether you would be an overseer or a deacon. Maybe you desire the office of overseer. Maybe you desire the office of deacon. Don't rush into it. It is a commendable thing. It is a good thing to desire to serve Christ as overseer or as deacon. Read 1 Timothy 3. Read Titus 1. Hear what people are saying to you about whether you are fit in one of those roles. And talk with the others. Talk with me. We are also looking. But you might want to consider that. We can encourage one another, stir one another up to love and good deeds as we all serve Christ. Christ's saints do well to pray for their leaders. So pray for us. Pray for me as your pastor. Pray for the other overseers on the session. Pray for the deacons. Pray for our conduct. Pray for the message that we communicate. Pray for our faithfulness. Pray for our families. Pray for our service, our wisdom, our ministries. And elders and deacons can thank the Lord that there are sheep to look after. There are sheep to serve. And don't complain about them. God has given everyone here to one another. So all of this is the basic structure of the church. There in Philippi, now here in, in Faithville. And this structure finally is built on the proclamation of the words of grace. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We tend to remember the first words of our child. I remember the first words of our firstborn, ball. Made a dad proud. Yeah, it would have been nice to have dad be his first word. Good deference to have mom as his first word. But no, ball. And I was okay with that because he played with ball, still does. Now he's gone to the soccer ball, but formerly it was the baseball. He could throw right to my chest before he was 10 months old. Thanks be to God. Ball. I remember it. What are Paul's first words? After he gives this greeting to all the saints, his first words, grace and peace. Paul leads the letter with grace and peace, with the gospel of our Father and our Savior. He begins with the pronouncement of God's saving grace, his spiritual flourishing and soulish delight in Christ alone. He is saying, may these dwell in you richly from our eternally gracious God. 
Dear saints, Christ's church is known by her God-given grace and peace. This is how we begin and end every single Lord's Day worship service. The greeting. The, the church service begins with the greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And how does the service end? With a benediction. A benediction of grace and peace. A benediction from Christ alone. Mediated through the servant. Begins and ends with grace and peace. We never graduate from grace and peace. We are a graced and pacified people always. Tis grace has brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. Six years ago, when I was researching Fayetteville, thinking this is where I would be. Turns out in God's providence, this is where I am. I learned that Fayetteville, which I firmly thought was Fayetteville, sorry, okay, that was my Spanish pronunciation um, influencing the word. But I learned that this is Fayetteville, home of 82nd Airborne, home of Fort Bragg. And we thank God for the military defense, protection, and presence of all of our service people. There's no doubt about it. But you know what Fayetteville really should be known for? Home of the gospel. Home of the gospel. This place has known the grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And thanks be to God, we are not the only beacon of light. You know that, right? There are many sound, faithful churches. Some Presbyterian, some not. And that's okay. And they love Jesus. And they love to worship our great triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they are another beacon of light. God has filled Fayetteville, with light, the light of the gospel. Can our city know more and more of this grace and peace? Obviously. Surely there are more rooms for grace and peace to occupy. Will they? Will grace and peace occupy more and more? Of course. Of course. Why wouldn't they? Who's the head of the church? Not me, not you, Jesus Christ. He's not done. He's clearly not done. If the whole world is going to be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, well, there needs to be more work done. And that's what God does. Once there was not a North Carolina, once there was not a Fayetteville, once there was not a Cross Creek, but then there was, and grace and peace came. Jesus came. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for the grace and peace that we have from you, our God, our Father, and Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we see the structure of the church here, Christ's church. And we're thankful for the ministry of grace that we have from you, O Lord Jesus, through your Spirit. Help us, Lord, to see what you know. Give us faith. Give us hope. In Christ we pray. Amen.